and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9 verse 14 to 38. The words are going to come up on the screen or if you like you can use your device or read from your Bible. But before Suz reads, how about we pray? Father God, often we listen to your word with little faith and preconceived ideas. But today we ask that in your mercy you might speak to us through your word and by your spirit, that you might reveal to us your vision and help us to understand how you see us and what we need. We, we pray that you grant us teachable hearts and minds that want to love and serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Doug. Starting in verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but you fast disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on, of an old garment on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. And neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and then she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus saw, turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men called out to him, calling out, followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes. According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd were amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. morning my name's Stephen one of the ministers here and uh, the seat is here because I've um, injured myself Coops took his term of being injured and I kind of mocked him the other week you might remember I talked about him hobbling up here and now I think I'm learning humility so uh, I'm going to be one of those hipster pastors and, and take a seat if I need to part way through but if I were to um, well hobble now across the tea tree plaza right now and um, and ask some of the people that I found there at Tea Tree Plaza, what do you make of Jesus? What kind of responses do you think I'd get? Or if, if you were to ask people at work, what do you make of Jesus? What do you reckon would be some of the most common kind of responses that you'd get? I was um, having a, a haircut a couple of months ago, and I was chatting to, to the hairdresser, this young guy, he, he just had a, a baby, and I asked him what he thought about Jesus and spiritual things. And he was really keen to chat this guy. But you know what his answer was? I don't know. I just have never really thought about it that much. Now, I feel like that is probably the most common answer that we're going to come across if we chat to people. Because for many people, they think that Jesus, he's just not that relevant to their lives. You know, some people, that they do have an opinion about Jesus, like he's prophet or he's a kind of religious teacher some would have an opinion like Jesus is just an idea just wishful thinking but even with people who do have an opinion it's amazing how often they don't go beyond simple categories superficial understandings it's like they've received an opinion about Jesus from their family or or from culture and they've just accepted it they've never really been confronted enough by Jesus, felt confronted enough by him to really feel the need to form their own opinion. And it's not necessarily that they're not open to changing their mind. It's just that Jesus is not really a priority. But what we've been seeing in, in Matthew, in Matthew's eyewitness account of Jesus' life, it's not like that at all. Unlike people today, what we see in Matthew is that the people back then, they found it a lot harder to have no opinion of Jesus because he's, he's there among them. He's teaching revolutionary kind of things. He's, he's doing things that they're seeing that are amazing. And so in these early days of Jesus' ministry that we've been looking at, we've also been seeing some early attempts to try and figure out who Jesus is. So, for example, last week when Jesus calms the storm even jesus disciples are trying to figure out who this guy is they say who is this man they're trying to figure jesus out and then we saw jesus heal a a paralyzed man but first remember he says your sins are forgiven and the teachers of the law are whispering among themselves who does jesus think he is they're trying to figure jesus out Then we saw Jesus eating with some undesirable people, some sinners. And this time the Pharisees, a a group of extra 
serious religious people. They're shocked that Jesus would be eating with people like that. They're trying to figure Jesus out. But so far, as we've been going through Matthew's report of what happened, we don't see where these people end up in their assessment of Jesus. We get to see more and more along the way, like we get to see Jesus has even control over natural forces. Jesus can forgive even sins against God. Jesus is someone who welcomes all sorts of people, people we'd probably even consider bad people, like a doctor welcoming the sick. And today we, get, we, we see this grappling with Jesus continue and we start to see people settle on an opinion in their assessment of who Jesus is. So to start with today, we see some of John's disciples come along and they have their turn at trying to figure out who Jesus is. Now, John, if you weren't aware, he, he was a prophet sent by God to point people to Jesus who would come after him. And so have a look at what John had said to people to look out for in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John said, After me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that's a a pretty powerful and, and, and in some ways terrifying picture of Jesus, isn't it? But some of John's followers, they're a bit confused by Jesus. Because in their mind, he doesn't seem to fit with this serious picture that John was painting. We see their problem in verse 14. They ask him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Can you hear that it's almost a bit of an accusation? Because neither Jesus or John were particularly impressed by the Pharisees. Many of them were religious hypocrites. So it's it's like they're saying, we fast, and even the Pharisees fast. So what kind of religious leader are you? There's Jesus and his disciples, and, and they're just coming from eating and drinking and having a good time at Matthew's place with sinners. And there's John's disciples just coming from spending all day telling sinners that they need to feel the sadness of what they've done and turn back to God all day not eating they fast twice a week and they're looking at Jesus thinking surely we're more the real deal than you aren't we even the Pharisees look like more of the real deal than you and the the Pharisees might have been fasting hypocritically you know trying to outdo each other in their religiousness and that sort of thing But John and his disciples weren't like that. Fasting for them, it was all about looking at the state of of how messed up this world is. And it was about focusing their minds and their hearts and and even their bodies on what God was going to do to fix up this world and longing for that. So it's a legitimate question. Why wouldn't Jesus lead his followers to focus on God and what he was going to do to fix up this world? Well, look at his response, Jesus' response in verse 15. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with him, with them? Now, if you're married, 
Think back to your wedding day. Were you grieving about what was happening? Don't answer that actually, because it's going to be a whole lot of marriage counseling right there. Hopefully not. Now, I still remember getting ready that day, my wedding day. There you go. I got up early that day, even though there really wasn't that much to do. Shower, done. Hair, surprisingly took a long time, as you can kind of see there, but actually done. Shave without cutting myself. Done. Put on suit. You know, that was the first half hour. What was the rest of the morning and the time? Hanging out with the guys, having fun. You know, I felt a little bit nervous, but, it, but it, was a, it was a great day. Mostly I felt excited. And I've been a groomsman at a wedding. And being a groomsman, I reckon, is even more fun than being the groom. You can muck around celebrating. I still remember dancing with the groom and the other groomsmen, practicing the bridal waltz out on the balcony while disturbed passers-by tried not to stare. I remember giving the best man speech. It, it was great fun. If you're at a wedding... And you're mourning, then something is seriously wrong. Now, the thing is, John's disciples, they haven't seen properly who Jesus is. They were focusing their, their minds and their hearts and their bodies on, uh, with longing for what God was going to do about this messed up world. And Jesus is saying, it's happening right there in front of their eyes. You know, the Old Testament painted this picture of what God was going to do in the world, God's final fixing up of the world as like a wedding celebration. And it's happening. It's happening for those who are with Jesus because they're with Jesus. He's the groom, the very thing that they were longing for in their fasting. It's it's found in him. Now, Jesus is not saying here that this is... This is the final celebration that's fully come. He's not saying this is God finally and fully fixing up the world for good there. And as we'll see over the weeks to come, it's, it's more involved than that. And even here, actually, Jesus gives a hint of the road that lies ahead because he says the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. He's hinting about the cross And the whole journey that's going to lie ahead before that final wedding day comes. But he is here, the groom, with his groomsmen. This is like the engagement party. And of course, they're not going to mourn. How could they? Now, just before we move on, this is one of the reasons why it's so sad that, that people don't have a strong opinion about who Jesus is. Every time we see the mess in this world, you know, every time we, we feel the, the weight of the brokenness of this world in our family or in the lives of others or, or in our own lives, God has got a, a clear and beautiful answer to that in mind. God's heart for you is, is to bring you to a world that is like an ongoing wedding celebration that never ends. But there's no way to be a part of that celebration without celebrating Jesus. Jesus is at the center of that celebration. Now, this is is really what Jesus goes on to say in, in, in these metaphors that he gives. The problem is they're trying to understand him and, and what he's doing in a flawed way. And it, it's a bit, a bit confusing, like um, Grilled Coops said before, uh, to understand what's going on, and especially, you know, for me as a non-sower. But Jesus says, basically, don't put a new bit of fabric on an old shirt 
the fabric will shrink and it'll look terrible. Don't try to spruce up the old. It's like you need new clothes entirely. And then Jesus says, verse 17, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Old wineskins made out of leather, they won't stretch like the new ones do as the wine ferments. Now, Jesus here, it's, it's not as simple as him saying, old is bad, new is good. Now, both, both illustrations are actually saying the same thing. Jesus is saying that what he's doing is so huge, it can't be contained by the old. He himself can't be limited by the old. This is really our, our first big point here. Jesus' vision, it's too wonderful to be contained by old, way of, old ways of doing things. The old points to him, but he makes everything new. This is the same as, as Jesus saying he fulfills the Old Testament scripture. He transforms the old way of doing things. And again, the, the point is, it's because of who Jesus is. If they saw the significance of him, of the groom standing there in their midst, they'd see that he changes everything. They'd look to him to define what life with God looks like. Jesus' point, it's not that fasting is now wrong and celebrating feasting is is now right. It's that fasting, if it happens, is now orientated around him. Feasting, celebrating is orientated around him because all of life is orientated around him. This is God's one purpose. He's one destination one goal for his world but john's disciples they're in danger of missing that goal because they're in danger of dismissing jesus because he doesn't fit with their understanding of the way that things should be done now i don't think we're likely to make the same mistake as them you know i I doubt we're likely to dismiss jesus because he doesn't fulfill or keep the old testament expectations like we think he should but i think there's a there's a danger for us here still that's a little bit similar see aren't we in danger of trying to understand jesus according to some other set of ideas of how things should be done aren't we in danger of trying to contain him trying to get him to fit into our own kind of wine skin if you like you know if i'm part of the the woke left progressive loving the sound of out with the old in with the new aren't i in danger of evaluating jesus according to how he fills my particular wineskin what's he got to say to people like leaders like donald trump what's he got to say about tolerance and acceptance and hate speech that's how i'm going to evaluate him and it's exactly the same for the opposite end if i'm a conservative Aren't I in danger of evaluating Jesus according to how he complies with what I think that he should comply with? What's Jesus got to say about freedom of speech? Now, it's not that these aren't great questions to ask, and it's not that Jesus doesn't have answers to these kind of questions. It's just that if we limit our understanding of Jesus according to any external ways of evaluating him, then we'll miss the truth about him. 
Jesus is the celebration. That's the point. And so he determines what that celebration looks like, how it unfolds. We need to look to him to find out what real life looks like. We need to make sure we don't interpret Jesus through another lens, a religious lens even, or what society defines as valuable and and worth celebrating. And this means if we see Jesus properly, he's just as confronting today as he was back then. See him properly and he's very hard to dismiss because we have to evaluate him on his terms, evaluate the celebration on his terms. And that's exactly what we get to do next. See, in the next few events, we get to see that Jesus' vision is to turn the deepest sadness into celebration through faith in him. I don't know if you noticed that as the passage was being read just before, but Jesus, he's barely finished talking about the celebration that he's on about. When we get to see some pretty spectacular tastes of what Jesus has in mind. While Jesus is still speaking, he's still saying these things. A man comes and kneels before him and says in verse 18, my daughter has just just died, but come and put your hands on her and she will live. I don't know if there's anything more painful than losing a child in this life. The worst funerals I've ever been to have been the the funerals of, of children. You know, if a wedding is one of the most joyful celebrations you can imagine. Well, a funeral has got to be the worst kind of gathering, the saddest. I remember going to the, the funeral of a, of a friend's baby who had died at birth. All through the pregnancy, had been fine, fine, right up till the 10th day being overdue. And then the baby had died. It was absolutely awful. We've seen different people trying to figure Jesus out but look at this guy this leader he sees Jesus and he sees him as someone who can reverse even death I mean it's absolutely remarkable faith and it's not misplaced faith because Jesus agrees to go with him but Jesus has barely started to follow this leader when when a lady follows him And she reaches out and she tries to secretly touch just probably the tassels on the edge of his cloak. Look at verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She's suffering in secret and she's trying to be healed in secret. But like the first guy, like the leader, she sees Jesus and she believes that he can help her. Verse 21, she says to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Matthew doesn't give us her backstory here, except to say that she's been bleeding for 12 years. But actually, if if you just stop, pause in the story for a moment and think about what this would have meant for her before rushing on to see what Jesus does, what you see is that her situation is, is also extremely sad. The word used here probably shows that this bleeding is is an abnormal uterine kind of bleeding, which would have meant all sorts of things for this lady. Like it probably meant she wouldn't have been able to have children. It probably had an impact on her marriage or maybe whether she ever did marry. 
It would have had religious and, and social implications for her. This is a person who probably experienced in her life the death of many of her hopes and dreams. But she sees Jesus. And she sees him as someone who can reverse her sadness. And she's right. Look at verse 22. Jesus sees her and he says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Then Jesus continues on his journey. He ignores the the people who laugh at him and what he's trying to do. And he takes the little girl's hand. And he reaches down into death and brings her back to life. In the space of minutes, we're seeing some of the saddest things that you can imagine in life. The loss of a child, chronic, life-draining illness. We're seeing them turned into celebration. It's almost too much to take in as you're reading through it. But too bad it just keeps coming at you. Because then as Jesus leaves straight away, two blind men follow him. And they call out in verse 27, Have mercy on us, son of David. Basically, these guys are saying that they think that Jesus is the long-awaited king that God was going to send to fix up the mess in this world. And these guys seem to be able to see what other people just aren't seeing because they follow Jesus, even inside. That's how persistent they are. And Jesus asks them in verse 28, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, Let it be done to you. Jesus' vision is to turn the deepest sadness into celebration. And notice what what we keep on seeing here. Notice how it happens. It happens through faith in him. They all see enough of Jesus to believe that, that he has what it takes to fix their problems. And as Matthew is reporting to you what what happened... It's like he's almost reaching out to you, asking you, do you see what this picture of Jesus adds up to? Can't you see even more than than these broken people that here really is the bridegroom? Here really is the one who brings the celebration because he is the one who is the celebration. Matthew is showing us that that the right response to Jesus, the response that he wants from us, is clear, confident faith. The same as we see in these people. But we actually see another response in these people, another clear and confident response. Look at verse 33. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Can you believe that? I mean, they are seeing clear evidence of Jesus turning sadness into celebration. And unlike people today, you know, they they can't just hide from what Jesus is doing. They can't hide from forming an opinion about him. He's right there. But instead of seeing this as something beautiful, something exciting, something worth giving your life to, they settle on an evaluation of Jesus that says, this is evil. He's evil. Why? Well, it seems that it's entirely because he doesn't fit with their idea of who he should be. He doesn't fit into their wineskin. Now, it seems shocking and maybe hard to believe that people would do this. But in one sense, people haven't really changed. You know, labeling good as evil 
and evil as good is almost as old as humanity is. And, and even today, still people look at, at belief in God. They look at those of us who surrender our lives to Jesus. They look at people who, who let Jesus define what life is all about, what's good. And, and how do they label us these days? Well, more and more as evil. Because following Jesus doesn't fit their definition, their boundaries, their wineskin. I was talking to one of you the other day about how when I finished uni, if they knew you were a Christian, it kind of helped you get a job because there was a good chance that you'd be uh, a hardworking person, an honest person and and a generous hearted kind of person. But I don't think it's like that these days. Now, if you're going for a job and they know you're a Christian, then I think it's probably harder to get a job because people will see you as morally questionable because you don't conform to what society demands of you. But we've got to start getting used to this. It doesn't matter what the Pharisees say. It doesn't matter what people today might say. What we see in Jesus, in history... Is God showing us where the real celebration is at? It's with Jesus. Jesus is the way that God is turning the sadness of this world into celebration. And it's as we see him clearly, confidently, that we join that celebration. Now this whole time I've, I've been talking about how people see Jesus. But actually, if Jesus really is who he's showing himself to be here then what's really important is how does he see people how does he see us well that's what we see in this last part of the passage have a look at verse 35 this section summarizes actually the first part of jesus mission right from chapter 4 where he first started his mission right through to now in chapter 9 and look at what it says in the summary verse 35 Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. We've seen Jesus do that again and again. And then in the next verse, we see how Jesus sees people. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever been up on Anstey Hill and seen those sheep without a shepherd up there? Am I the only one that they seem to hang around? I find them kind of freaky, to be honest. They're kind of scary looking. You know, maybe they're up there on Anstey Hill and they're living the free life, thinking Hakuna Matata and all that. (laughs) But I I don't know. I don't think so. They look pretty riddled with worms. They look pretty bedraggled with like their fur hanging off them. And I bet you when they come face to face with a wild dog at night, they're not thinking Hakuna Matata. They're not living carefree. Now, it's actually pretty confronting when you think that's how Jesus sees the crowds. The people of Israel, God's own people. He sees them like sheep that actually these words seem to indicate like sheep that have been mauled and thrown down by some predator on the ground suffering. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd to care for them. And if that's how he sees Israel, God's own people, then how does he see us? You know, for the people of Israel, 
their leaders, their shepherds were clearly failing them. But for us, we're no better off. But I don't know about you, but I tend to look at the people around me. And the way I see people is, yeah, they look like they're going fine. You know, they're happy. They look like they've got it all together. If I did wander over to Tea Tree Plaza and looked around, I I reckon I'd be inclined to think, Jesus is not a priority because they've got life altogether just fine. But you know what that is? It's a failure of empathy. It's because I I don't listen. I I don't want to see. Because we know what happens when we sit down with someone at work and really talk or anywhere. If someone's being honest, we're absolutely guaranteed to discover that there are things in this world that have, have torn them and thrown them down and that will keep on doing it. It doesn't mean that they see it that way, of course. I mean, that's part of the tragedy that Jesus sees in us. The tragedy is that we'll keep turning to shepherds that will eventually turn on us and just do the same thing again. Money, career, spirituality, pleasure, self-improvement, a relationship, even children. You see it all the time. We're all led by all sorts of things that that promise that celebration in the end, but just can't deliver. And our leaders fail us still today. They're not life-giving in the end. You know, we've seen that this week, even from our literal leaders, our political leaders. They lead us to follow ways of life and ideologies that promise freedom, liberation. But in the end, they bring heartache and sadness and guilt and regret. Jesus sees through the lies of these shepherds. He sees through the lies that we project to each other, the lies that we tell even ourselves. And he sees that what we need to go from sadness to celebration is him. And so look at what he says to his disciples, those who follow him in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying to his followers, they need to look at people differently. They need to share his vision for them. Jesus is, is he's calling us to share his vision of how he sees people and what they need. The harvest, it's actually just another picture of the end time celebration. But it's actually also a picture of judgment. Jesus' point here is that there are a whole heap of people out there who need him and who are actually open to seeing that they need him. If only there were enough people ready to go out there and do the hard work of pointing people to Jesus. Now, this is, this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry that we're seeing here. We've seen a lot about who he is and, and what he's on about. And here he, he, he's turning things over to his followers, to us, and, and he's calling us to join him. And next week, that's what it's all about. Chapter 10 is, is all about that call. But here today at this point, having seen who Jesus is and, and what he's on about, just before we next week turn to that to think about what this means for others, I want to stop today and just say, what does this mean for us? I want to ask you, is your faith in Jesus clear 
and confident. Like some of the people that we've seen today. Is it clear and confident? Or is it wavering? You know, to put this another way. Who or what are you looking to in your life to to deliver the celebration for you? Have you noticed the way that we tend to chase other shepherds in life? Other things that we think are worth living for that are going to bring us that celebration? A relationship or being a parent or a certain kind of identity or sexuality or a sense of worth found in power or money? But then when that shepherd fails us, when it lets us down, who do we tend to blame? Well, I see it all the time. For some reason, we blame the shepherd that we've replaced, Jesus. Now, that's not clear and confident faith in Jesus. It's not even fair. Jesus wants us to have real faith in him as our shepherd. He doesn't want us to have faith in theory, but not in practice. He doesn't want us to have faith that dictates to him who he should be, but clear, confident faith that he will bring the true celebration that lasts, that it's with him. He is the true celebration. Now, I I know just some of the hardships that you guys are going through at the moment, and there's some big things. Family sickness, struggles with kids, Struggles with your own health, mental health, fear about the future. Some of you have lost kids. Some of you don't have work or enough work or you're worried about losing the work that you do have. Some of us have got marriages that are hard. Some of us are single and find that incredibly hard. But whatever your sadness is, do you see what Jesus' heart is for you? His heart is to turn sadness to celebration. Not in theory, but in practice. Maybe not in the way that we might want to dictate to him. But the celebration that he's got planned for us is far greater than what we would come up with. And it really is a celebration that's centered on him, that's defined by him. Before we keep going on in Matthew, now is a good time to stop. And having seen Jesus afresh, to put our faith in him afresh. Can you have that clear confidence that Jesus will bring you to the ultimate celebration beyond this life? You can. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his heart for us. That he wants to be with us, that the whole reason he came to this earth, ministered amongst us and ultimately died and rose again was so that we might live with him for all eternity. Lord, help us to see through the lies of this world, the lies of our own heart. Help us to see that the true celebration is there with you, brought about because Jesus has come to be with us. Father, give us that clear and confident faith In the face of such hard things in this world, Lord, help us not to be shaken, but to keep coming back to Jesus afresh and seeing that he really does want what is best for us and will bring it about. Give us that confidence in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.